This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The normal things that beguile you in fiction, that make you identify with characters, are also choices about who to care about and what to pay attention to. And what I wanted this book to say was, don't decide. (laughs) Don't make any clear decisions about who you're paying attention to. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I am your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it is so nice to see you again and to hear your slightly cold-ridden voice. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting over a cold, but it means that I have like a truly amazing podcasting voice. Truly right now. You amazing. You know, like if I had this voice all the time, imagine the thousands of dollars I could make. But enough about your voice. Tell me about the voice we heard at the top of the show. That was the voice of the wonderful, brilliant novelist, essayist, creative writing professor, Jonathan Lethem. Now, Jonathan is one of our rare returning guests. Why did you want to talk to him now? Well, the first time I interviewed him was right after we launched this show. And I I do feel like we have uh, more audience, different audience now. And so uh, it's new to you. Uh, But the second (laughs) thing is that Jonathan has a new book coming out. It comes out about a week after this episode airs called Brooklyn Crime Novel. Uh, It's a revisiting of material he last wrote about 20 years ago in his novels, Motherless Brooklyn and Fortress of Solitude, as well as his essay collection, The Disappointment Artist. Now, these three books really catapulted him to like a international renown and made him a prominent American novelist. He won a MacArthur during that period. You know, it, it really changed his life and his career. And all of that work is circling his childhood in the 60s and 70s in Borham Hill, Brooklyn also happens to be where I live. Well, this Hmm. novel is kind of recircling the stuff that (laughs) earlier work circled. And in the process, I think kind of reinventing what the novel is for and what it can do. And so I was really interested in what it means to go back to stuff you've already covered and to approach it again and, and what that process might look like. Amazing. Well, I cannot wait to hear that conversation, but I bet you have a little something extra just for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? Oh, I do. Uh, Jonathan makes a really wild structural decision with Brooklyn Crime Novel, which is uh, the novel is this kind of pointillist constellation of fragments. Uh, Some of the chapters are conventional chapter length. Some of the chapters are as short as a sentence or two. And I was really interested in how do you write, assemble and structure a novel that has 140 chapters and under 400 pages? (laughs) Wow. Oh, well, what a treat. If you're a member of Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of the episode. 
And if you aren't, let me tell you, it is really easy to join. As a Slate Plus member, you get to hear extra segments on this show and others like The Waves and Culture Gab Fest. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Big Mood, Little Mood and Decoder Ring. And of course, you'll never hit a paywall at Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. Okay, let's hear Isaac's conversation with writer Jonathan Leatham. Jonathan Leatham, welcome back to Working to talk about your process. Thanks, Isaac. It's nice to be back with you. You know, you were one of the first interviews I did when we relaunched the show. Uh, That was back when your novel, The Arrest, came out was about to come out during the pandemic. And, you know, we were talking a lot about kind of the the day-to-day nitty-gritty of your process. So I thought this time you have a new book out called Brooklyn Crime Novel. It is both following up on earlier work and I think in a lot of ways taking your work in a different direction. So I'd love to just kind of really hunker down in this book for the course of our of our interview. So for our listeners who have not read it yet, uh, how would you describe Brooklyn Crime Novel? Oh, boy. Well, so this book is a, openly a kind of return to the source code for me. I, you know, 20 years ago, I published a book called The Fortress of Solitude. And that was, at the time, it was my uh, sixth novel, and I began it before 9-11. I began writing it in 99 and didn't finish it until after 9-11. And it, of course, like a lot of novels in that moment, took on a certain kind of elegiac energy from the passion we all felt for New York City. And um, it was a openly autobiographical book with a tremendous ambition to somehow not digest, not answer, not solve the questions of growing up in the time and place that I had, which was the part of Brooklyn known as Gowanus or Borham Hill or downtown Brooklyn in the 1970s and 1980s, but just to give that experience its name, to find a voice for it. And at the time, I thought it was conclusive, not because I'd you know, solved things or, or dispensed with these immense questions, but that I'd spoken all the versions that I had inside me and and laid them out, laid them bare, and that I'd exhausted the subject for myself. Right. And and you also did a a nonfiction treatment of the same material around that time, which was published as your first essay collection, uh, The Disappointment Artist, right? That's that's true. I, I, I wrote autobiographically as a kind of, almost a kind of afterbirth experience. There were so many portions of my coming of age that I'd searched into to write the novel that I began to want to talk about them even more directly. So now it's it's 20 years later and um, I began slowly to inch back into a sensation of having more to say, that it was possible to say more and also that it was like becoming kind of necessary to say more, that I felt differently and I felt that the world had changed so much and I'd changed so much and, you know, to use the academic term, the discourse had changed so much that it was calling me back to that, what I'm calling the source code, those elements of my experience that I tried to give name. Actually, now they almost look to me like they were still completely 
raw and is waiting for me to, to hold them up to the light and turn them around and give them new descriptions. Right. I mean, it seems like, you know, 20 years is a long time, right? It's like you are a different person. Your POV on your childhood, I'm sure is different. I know like my POV on my childhood is different from even three years ago or whatever, right? Yeah. But I was also the beneficiary of conversations with other people. Mm. I mean, that's a big part of this book is that it's really, it sweeps up all kinds of transactions, oral histories, research, things people brought to me, stories people wanted me to know about, you know, it, there was a kind of a joke that wasn't a joke that I had when I went on tour for Fortress of Solitude that it wasn't really about me saying anything. It was like the Fortress of Solitude listening tour. Right, right. Where I would go out and I, would, I was recipient of all the things that the book had triggered in other people. And I learned a lot subsequent to writing the book that sat inside me, you know, and, and that I lived with. I think in many ways this, this book is about time and it's about memory and it's about living with yourself and the unresolved quality of your personal material for so long that you can't, you know, it, it becomes amazing to you mm-hmm. how the memories can remain so charged and so powerful. But in my case, it also has this specific extra, which is I tried once. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to discharge them and I sort of did, you know, I like, I cast them in one light and it turns out that that wasn't even close to being a fulfillment of the experience for me of bearing them around in my body or of absorbing what other people had to say about them because I also became a kind of public witness in a way. You know, I, I uh, the conversation around the Fortress of Solitude churned inside me. It was a kind of machine for producing material about that same set of circumstances. It seems like another thing that's going on, and, and I mention this because a fictionalized version of you appears in the book and is very disdainfully discussed by one of the characters uh, for a novel he wrote called Take Me to the Bridge. <laughs> you know, And you, in um, your essay collection, The Ecstasy of Influence, talk about your sort of own unwitting role in Brooklyn becoming this cultural thing called Brooklyn, this sort of image of itself. I mean, I live in Borum Hill. I actually moved here before Fortress of Solitude came out, but after Motherless Brooklyn, right? So right in the middle of of that. Uh, it does seem to some extent like the book wants to reckon a bit with your own place in that history of sort of unwittingly accelerating a kind of odd change in the neighborhood or, or a public elevation of the neighborhood and of the borough into this new thing that was happening in the aughts. Yeah, I mean, that's in there. I, I, well, first I'll tell you a, a funny, which is that when I handed this book to my friend Dana Spiota, who's amazingly uh, insightful when I've gotten her to spend time with one of my manuscripts, and I'm so grateful for it. She's one of my best readers, you know, you'd you'd never know where that's going to come from. But she said, when she came to that portion of the book, she said, I think I get it. When the problem is, am I punching up or am I punching down? The solution is punch self. (laughs) Amazing. So, okay, I'm going to tell you another story, which is longer and also I think will reveal a lot of things that will interest you because I know you come out of theater as much as you do out of literary writing. In the middle of that 20 years, between Fortress of Solitude and my feeling, my declaration to myself and sometimes to other people that, oh, I'll never need to write about Brooklyn again. I I did that, taken care of, you know, exhausted. Uh, In the middle of that two decades, Fortress of Solitude was adapted for the musical stage. Right, right, of course. By an incredibly talented, well, 
so many people, the performers. There was such an incredible array of talents brought to bear on it. And in such an amazing way, they produced this result. Uh, Itamar Moses and, and uh, Daniel Auken, the director, and then maybe above all, Michael Friedman, the late Michael Friedman, who wrote this incredible translation of the book yeah. into a, a musical in the songs. This little world can seem so big without anyone to love. My mother always says to love. that a Brooklyn kid won't grow up with the hangups that she did. So this thing happened to Fortress of Solitude. And I was very honored and very amazed, and I was totally performed my humbleness at every possible occasion. I would say, oh, my God, Michael Friedman and, and Itamar and Daniel, they made this thing, and it's so beautiful, and it's so different from anything I could imagine, and, and what a gift. But, of course, I was thrust at a certain moment onto the stage to do a talk back, side by side with the creators, to a packed audience in the theater. And so there I am sitting there like as if I'm responsible for what they've just undergone. In fact, I had just been in the audience with them, weeping my eyes out. But I, I was at, at answering questions, and I was asked the question that I was always asked in the wake of The Fortress of Solitude. It, it, here it was, 10 or 12 years after the book, the question came back to life. Will you ever write about Dean Street again? <laughs> And instead of giving my standard answer, which is, I've exhausted it, I couldn't possibly, it's for other people to do, I heard myself making up a kind of a joke, but it turned out it wasn't really a joke. And what I said to the audience on that stage was, well, you know, with all respect to the amazing thing we just witnessed, it's put a weird little new fantasy in my head. And that is, what if this thing became grotesquely popular and, you know, went to Broadway and became Rent and then they made a bad movie version and it was like Dean Street became this insufferable image that thrived in the popular culture and got more and more cartoonish and soon it was like Cats, you know, it was it bore the same relationship to T.S. Eliot that Cats does. <laughs> and I, yeah, and yeah. I said, with all respect to this musical theater, I, I do have an idea for a new book now. And the book would be, what if you lived on the street where someone wrote a novel that was then turned into a theater piece that was then turned into a horrible movie and became famous and was a t-shirt and everyone was talking about it and you grew up there and you feel that they got every damn thing completely wrong. I might have an idea for a novel today that would be a book written from the perspective of someone who wants to set the record straight. Mm. And in a way, what I was conceiving was Brooklyn crime novel, which is like to position myself against Fortress and say, I got to tear the romantic frosting, the nostalgic frosting off of this thing that's not a cake. It's, it's a disaster area. Right. With the frosting of a cake slathered over it. And I'm going to tear the, the romanticism and the golden light and the, the you know, romance of childhood, all that Dickensian crap. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm going to rip it away and show you what it was really like to be there from the perspective of someone who hates this other image that had been generated. Mm. So that was me accidentally declaring my purposes in writing this new book. Wow. And we should say, yeah, you, you talk about golden light in the book itself and say no golden light, you know, no golden light. That's not the only 
conventional aspect of the novel, the Brooklyn crime novel, is missing. And I should say, because I'm about to make it sound like a really austere, difficult experience, that having read and loved Brooklyn crime novel, it's a really fun read, but it has operating at the same time a really strict conceptual rigor about what you are and are not going to do as a novelist. I have to assume at some point you explicitly kind of articulated to yourself what the rules of the book were or, or, you know, you have some sort of list in your head. And I was wondering if you could share those with us for people who don't know the book. That's such a great question. And I really like that you use the term operations. I mean, I think that I also, I hope not just for your listeners sake or for the, sake of the sales figures, that we can describe the book as funny and approachable and, you know, I do think, having some charm. Oh, I absolutely I think, think ha- all of that is true. I think it's very funny. I hope that those things are true. Yeah. But there's no question that, in a way, the question of the operation of the book is one, it wasn't just true for me as a writer, like the operation of generating it. I think I imposed an operation on the reader, which is that they have to discover how to pick this device up and make it move mm. that it's it it refuses in some ways to play the normal game of characters and storyline right and instead says uh you know i'm sorry we can't do that today <laughs> it's just not possible uh something else is going to have to be done and so you know the first announcement it makes on those terms is in some ways one of the most literal is that the characters don't have names right in many cases they're given these honorifics, basically, like the, you know, the millionaire's son or the spoiled kid. And in some other cases, they're given a sort of very schematic nickname or something, an identifier. Or other times, they're just those two guys. Remember those ones from earlier? Oh, this is them again. Right. And it was a distancing maneuver. And of course, one wouldn't think that in this urgency that I've described about getting closer to the truth, getting deeper in, that I should be seeking distancing maneuvers. But in fact, the normal things that beguile you in fiction, that make you identify with characters, are also, you know, they're choices that the writer's making and then the reader's complicit with about who to care about and what to pay attention to. And what I wanted this book to say was, don't decide. (laughs) Don't make any clear decisions about who you're paying attention to or what matters here, because we have got to do a much deeper inquiry than that. We can't get seduced and start, you know, rooting for people here. It's more like an x-ray or or ripping the, the rock up and looking at all the different creatures squirming underneath the rock. Uh, you can care about them for a couple of pages, mm-hmm. and you might laugh at them or you might admire them or you might revile them for a couple of pages, but we're always going to stop you and say, but now... Look over here. Mm. I do think that it sneaks up on you. I hope it sneaks up on you that there's a kind of a, a sublimated novel in there that keeps reaching back, you know, through the surface. Right. I'm interested in that because I even wrote down in my notes for today that, you know, there's like this strange effect that there's this more conventional novel happening underneath the one you're reading that you don't have access to. And then it bubbles up every now and then, you know? And, and I was curious <laughs> as to like, had you sketched out that more conventional novel? Is there a version of this story where everyone has names and interiority and then you threw it in the garbage? I had to occasionally stop and write portions of it just to exclude mm. the conventional. As I grew drawn into the possible 
more typical characterizations, I would sometimes uh, become entranced by them. And so I, even though this book has a certain breadth, ambition, it takes place over a large number of time periods, it shows you the world from many different points of view, which sounds big, it sounds inclusive. I actually, the, the way to make it was by an operation of exclusions. I'd keep telling myself, not this, not that. Stop doing this. Mm. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Jonathan Weatham. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listeners, we really want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. Leave us a voicemail. And if you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Jonathan Lethem. This is a weird thing normally the author reads, but I haven't have your book here. I just have opened to a random page uh, very early on to give sort of a flavor of what the narrator is like and the narrator's voice. We should say the narrator is a person, but who they are is never revealed in the book. And they sort of tease you about that a little bit. Yeah, they start as a as a collective. Right. And then they the collective falls apart. Yeah. Uh, fancy that they've assigned themselves breaks down and they have to admit that they're only one person. Yeah. So this is early on at the beginning of a chapter called Hockey Warriors, which is the fourth chapter of the book, but only on page eight. The chapters are very short. A black boy and three white boys walk carrying hockey sticks down Dean Street westward across Smith Street. Then at Court Street, as Dean jogs and changes its name to Amity, they move into Cobble Hill. From there, they turn south down Clinton Street towards Carroll Gardens, the Italian neighborhood. Two of the three boys are 13. The third, an 11-year-old, another white boy, is a younger brother. The younger brother is, frankly, a compromise recruit. They need him to flesh out a team of four. They've got a date for a game of street hockey with an established all-Italian group who await them on Henry Street. The younger brother needed some persuading because hockey? Street hockey? You know, just, just to give like a little bit that there's a remove. You can see the boys don't have names, right? Yeah. Everything is exterior. There's very little interiority. Um, and also this kind of inquiry investigative voice that when it's relating events is kind of trying to tell you the facts, but then it's going to look underneath those facts. What else is going on? I'm just 
curious about how you found that voice because it doesn't strike me as similar to Lionel Esrog or, you know, the voice of the arrest or the various vocal experiments you're doing in Dissident Gardens. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, of course, there are things I don't know about how I got to yeah, where I right. got. It, it had its own compulsive and uncanny property where it seized me up and I was experiencing the book. And I think that some of its stoppages or hesitations or self-contradictions come from me letting myself record my confusion, my amazement, my dismay even at what I was uncovering when I was writing. You know, like, am I really saying this now? Right. God, okay. Uh, Well, let me try. Now, let me stop. Okay, let's switch. You know, while we're here, I just realized I could also say this. Mm -hmm. And I let the book become a record of its own power over me. But it's also, I'm going to point again to the kind of secret collaborative element, which is that it was the result of conversations. I was looking up people I hadn't seen in 35, 40 years and having, this was on Zoom during the pandemic, I was having these long reminiscing conversations with them. You know, when I first planned to write this book, I thought I was going to be living in New York, just being there as much as I possibly could to look up these people I wanted to talk to again and compare notes with. A lot of what I wanted to do was say, was it like this for you? Did I make that up? And then just listen. Listen a lot to what they told me. And then I thought the pandemic was a disaster for it. But in fact, I don't know if your experience confirms this, but in the early going, when we were all trapped in our houses, when you got on a Zoom, if you, especially if you reconnected with someone from long ago, those were very, very intimate. Totally conversations. And this book is the beneficiary of that weird piece of luck, which is that I would find these people on whatever it would be, Facebook or through the network of, you know, my remaining friends in Brooklyn, I'd say, do you still know how to find, you know, this guy? And then we'd get on Zoom and talk for three hours. It's like turning a faucet on. So some of the contradictions in the voice and some of the compulsiveness in the voice is other people's voice rising up inside Mm. my own. You know, there's a thing we talk about a lot on this podcast. It was a thing I learned in graduate school that was like, uh, the adage is a problem for your text must become a problem in your text. You know, and it feels like you took that like as far as you possibly could. Right. It's like, well, what is the problem? It's like, how do you definitively say something is true? What does it mean to say that something is true? You know, what is Brooklyn or, you know, and they, they become the actual content, the actual thing, the voice itself is thinking about. Absolutely. I mean, that's great. I love that. And it reminds me of a thing that uh, science fiction writers sometimes talk about a dishism, which is based on the name of Thomas Dish. The great Thomas Dish. The ultimate dishism is a story that Dish wrote called The Squirrel Cage, which begins with a guy typing on a blank sheet of paper. You know, I think I am Thomas Dish trying to write a story. And it, dishism is when, and you see this, of course, in many less interesting examples where people put the conditions of the writing. I, I'm bored and I, you know, the character is sitting alone in a room, under furnished room, bored and wondering what they're going to say or think. And you're like, that's ah, actually just you, the writer, <laughs> struggling to come up with something. Right. So additionism isn't necessarily attractive, but in this case, I think I embraced the fact that the book was often angry at itself. It was exhausted by its own burden of remembrance, and I let all of that get onto the Mm. page. This book openly regards the problem of remembering and forgetting and coping with trauma as like 
must I? Right. Do I really have to do this? And that is one of the urgencies in the narrative is like, why am I doing this? Why must I do this? Mm-hmm. You know, why do I have to go on living with the, the knowledge that's in my body that won't resolve right. into something simple? You know, this is, of course, a podcast about craft and creativity, and you take on one of the great sort of storytelling craft adages of American uh, creative writing workshop, uh, which is, of course, the old adage, show, don't tell. Your book takes a, at first, skeptical and eventually extremely <laughs> hostile uh, uh, point of view it on takes, that. It t- takes an axe to, to show, <laughs> I, don't in tell. In fact, I will quote yeah. a thing you say towards the end of the novel, as I believe I may have asserted once previously, fuck that shit. If you don't care to know what I think, <laughs> skip the chapter. Can you talk a bit about showing and telling and how you came to this place with it, with this uh, book? Yeah, yeah. Well, as a writing instructor, I've always been skeptical. I mean, it's a lot easier to understand the imperative when you're looking at a lot of fledgling manuscripts. Because, in fact, a lot of people, on a simple technical level, choose against elaborating things in dramatic terms and and using demonstrated actions or speech or behavior by characters in favor of summary. And so it's a sometimes at the root level it's a meaningful intervention. But when it becomes a kind of holy injunction that that's what art consists of, always showing, never telling, I think it becomes a absolute not only, you know, misguided but uh, deeply suspicious like what are we trying to avoid here? And look at the things that you actually like to read. Don't they always do both? Don't you always care to hear the analysis as well as the exhibition? Don't the two things live on each other? But in this case, I also saw it as having a kind of, I felt it as a politically suspicious injunction. Like, it's a cover-up. Show, don't tell is telling you, don't make me think about, you know, it's complicit with a kind of American amnesiac preference for not analyzing the systemic undercurrents of all kinds of experience. You know, oh, let's not, no, don't do that. Right. That's academic. That's telling. That's, that's political. Don't be political. Just, just make a good story. Just show us the characters. It's really a kind of suppression, according anyway to the, uh, the desires that this book discovered, that the voice in this book discovered, the inquiry discovered, which was like to always say, well, why did that happen? Right. Why was it like that? Okay, you know, enough of poor little me. I grew up here and it was hard. You know, what made it what it was? Yeah, yeah, totally. Because it's interesting that you think of it the way you discuss it. Because I think of this all the time, actually, as the book is, you know, at some point it becomes a thing that's separate from you that's sort of dictating itself to you and then you're writing it. Like it's it's using you yeah. in a weird way after oh, a while. Oh, this, this so one, it, absolutely. It has its yeah. point of view on this, but it's not like uh, you're never going to write a semi-naturalistic novel again or, you know, it's not like you're, yeah. it's not like this is what every book you're going to do is now. But it's like this is the thing that it needed to be in order to do the thing it needed to do. Absolutely. And and the path of not knowing, you know, that's Donald Barthelme's term. But I just heard, you know, I was just sitting listening to the poet Ross Gay give a talk to my students. What a marvelous, marvelous speaker he is. And he was asked about um, another cliche, which is write what you know. And he sort of chewed on that for a little while. He was like, yeah, you know, it sort of sounds okay, but, but I don't know. I don't think I write 
what I know. I think I write to unknow. Mm. <laughs> and, and what am I writing to unknow? I might be writing to unknow myself. And that I related to instantly. And I think this was a book where I wrote to unknow myself at a certain level by treating, in a way, the Fortress of Solitude as a problem to be avoided. Even though I'm, you know, when I walk around in my regular life, I'm very proud to be the author of The Fortress of Solitude. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it was pretty good and did a lot on its terms. You know, yeah. it said a lot of what could be said at the time, although 20 years later, you can say a lot more. The world has changed in crucial ways. Our language has unfrozen in many ways, politically especially, uh, that gives access that that book did not have the benefit of. But I'm proud of the book. But But by treating it as like, a problem. I was, in, in a sense, you know, that joke I made on the stage of the theater, I made up a character that night. Right. The character was the author of a book. And then I became, for the duration of writing Brooklyn Crime Novel, I became that aggravated, confused, resistant person who was like, I don't know what's true, but I know that wasn't. Right. Now, <laughs> now did you find it easy to get into that character? Like when you sat down at the computer, did it happen? Or were there things oh, you needed to do point, to... It was all I was, you know, right. like a like a actor taking his work home with him at night and, you know, becoming obnoxious to his family or something. It's, it, I, I, it's almost like you know that um, Bugs Bunny cartoon where uh, Daffy is being tormented by the animator, and then it's revealed that Bugs. <laughs> is, it's sort of like you're both Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny right. in that cartoon simultaneously, well, like over and over know, and over again. Perfect, absolutely. Uh, duck amuck is yeah, the, yeah. The, duck amuck, the, of the, course. The, the great, the great duck amuck. Buster, it may come as a complete surprise to you to find that this is an animated cartoon, and that in animated cartoons they have scenery, and in all the years I. All right, wise guy. Where am I? In order to draw the animator drawing Daffy wrong, you have to draw a hand. Right. That's the trick. <laughs> so I drew a hand, and the hand wrote the book. Yeah. You know? Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on Working to talk about the new book and about your process. It's great to talk with you, Isaac. Thank you so much for having me. Up next, Isaac and I will talk about artists returning to material they explored earlier in their career. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Isaac, I really enjoyed hearing Jonathan's motivations for 
returning to the source code, as he put it, of Fortress of Solitude and, and the other work from that period. And in a very real way, he's also returning to his own childhood and adolescence. I think one of the best aspects of being a successful artist is that you get the opportunity to revisit the settings and ideas of your work as time passes and like a sort of prevailing cultural mood evolves. I'm curious if you've ever wanted to return to a topic or a profile or a piece of work and approach it from a different angle. You know, I just got to say, I love artists who are always kind of circling the same ideas and themes because I think it provides a really rich experience as you get more and more familiar with their body of work. Everything starts to speak to one another. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, to give just three examples, William Shakespeare does that. Mm. I mean, you know, Michael Mann does that. Iris Murdoch does that. You know, I recently read my first Anne Ernaux book, uh, the French memoirist who recently won the Nobel Prize. And like mm -hmm. all of her memoirs, if you read the back of them, they're all about the same like six things that happened to her. Uh, yeah. But she's circling and reconfiguring them again and again. And part of you might think, well, why would you do this? But the truth is, is that as we age, we become different people and different artists and our points of view change. You know, Jonathan 20 years ago would not have written Brooklyn crime novel. Jonathan now mm -hmm. would not write Fortress of Solitude. <laughs> I have not made enough work or book length kind of major work to return to the source code yet. You know, I just don't think I'm there. At the same time, I also do feel like I'm secretly circling things Ooh. that I first encountered in high school. Angels in America, The Method, and the first culture wars were all things that were kind of bubbling up and really important to me in the 1990s. Uh, I, mm. I had dinner recently with my my best friend from childhood, and he was like, oh, what's the third book again? And I said it to him. He goes, you know, it's really cool. You're writing these three books about stuff we were into in high school. And I was like, you're yeah. the only person who figured that out. Uh, but it's true. You know, all writing is veiled autobiography, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. When I was listening to Jonathan, I didn't put this together, but your answer Reminded me, of course, one of my favorite artists, Pedro Almodovar, just oh, yeah, not only course. returns to the same topics, but the same scenes. He literally repeats the same scene in multiple movies. Sometimes it goes in a different direction. Sometimes it literally repeats just with different actors. And it, it's to me, it's absolutely fascinating. I, and I prefer him to stick to that material. I don't really like it when he goes off script and, and does something fresh. And what's interesting with Almodovar is, you know, the early work does not seem autobiographical at all it's this sort of campy extreme mm -hmm. almost soap operatic yeah. thing but the auto fictional work is really like hey let me tell you what was going on underneath all this stuff yeah. Yeah. the whole time and you know yeah. jonathan says this thing in the interview that i think is so brilliant that like in order to have the animator fuck with daffy duck you have to show his hand right you have to yes. show the yes. animator and yeah. almodovar does that in pain and glory right once yeah, he yeah, himself absolutely. becomes a character played by his muse Antonio Banderas in the greatest performance of Banderas's career and mm -hmm. so I mean I think Almodovar is doing actually like a really really similar thing in a really beautiful way yeah wow all right well another thing that struck me about Jonathan Lethem's lovely description of what he was trying to do in this novel is that it really is a testimony to the potential of fiction I mean if Brooklyn crime novel were a TV series, a viewer would have much less freedom to embroider on the cloth that the writer has provided than the pretty much endless possibilities that a reader has. I mean, 
the requirements of dialogue might require that characters have names, for example, and right. casting literally puts a face to a character. And I think all the time about how casting shapes television. You know, we never see characters' family members unless they are part of the core group because whoever was cast would have to be paid to stay available to t return to the show the next time they needed a character's father or whatever. And that's also why TV characters' friendship circles seem so small. I mean, that's maybe kind of a, an odd thing to associate with a great work of fiction, but it really does seem like, oh my God, fiction the novel has so many more possibilities. You know, I agree with you in that, you know, you can make a page do anything, right? You yeah. just have to have the words for it. But I do want to push back a little bit on one thing, or, or maybe not push back, but just differentiate between the limitations of a form or the media and the limitations of the business that creates uh, yes. the versions yeah. of the media we see. And because we talk yeah. about limitations on, uh, being a source of creativity, you know, I do want to say they aren't always the same thing. Like you yeah. could have a super large family in a TV show for very little money if it was the same actor in a series of wigs <laughs> or cut out drawings on popsicle sticks and someone's <laughs> doing all of the voices. I mean, look, these are not yeah. great ideas. They're both off the top mm. of my head. But yes. I do think that Actually, the media of TV and film have enormous possibilities that we are not tapping because of business limitations. Yeah, and, and we yeah. should just recognize that, you know, um, that doesn't mean that the forms themselves are as limited as we think they are. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that one of the reasons that cartoons are so popular, not just with viewers, but with the networks, are that, you know, you can have, okay, now the characters have got a pet elephant. Hey, there we go. And Next week, he's not there, but we'll have a pet, you know, whatever. You can do whatever right. you want in a in a cartoon, yeah. You can absolutely do whatever you want in a cartoon, and labor is cheaper. A lot of those writing rooms are not unionized, or the union they're in is less powerful. Actors yeah. can play, like, a whole lot of roles. You don't pay yeah. actors as much, you know. Uh, to yeah. return to Looney Tunes, almost every character was voiced by one guy, right? Mel Blanc. Yes. Mel Blanc yes. did almost every single voice. Yeah. And Mel Blanc was such a genius, you could keep throwing new characters at him uh, all the time. Yeah. Okay, can we talk about titles? I because love talking about titles. I have not yet read this book, but Brooklyn Crime Novel is not, as I understand it, a crime novel. Does that make it a bad title? I don't want to get hung up, but I confess this did keep tripping me up a little bit. I mean, it's not a crime novel in the sense of it being, you know, like a George Pelicanos novel or an <laughs> Elmore Leonard novel. You know, it's not okay. about a group of people and the circumstances surrounding a central crime in that way. But it is in its own way a crime novel. Uh, I don't want to spoil that. I will just say that what it's really actually doing is investigating and upending our ideas of what the three words in its title mean, both individually and together. So wow. what is Brooklyn? What is a crime? What is a novel? It's trying to break those <laughs> apart and look at the pieces. So I'll give an example. The crime that it returns to, I'm putting that in heavy quotes, over and over and over again, is black kids mugging white kids in the 1970s, right? Uh, and what the book starts to do is investigate that. And then it's really asking, like, is that a crime or is it actually a ritual? If everyone knows it's going to happen, and in fact, everyone knows it's going to happen to such an extent that you have a special dollar you keep in your pocket for when you get mugged, isn't that 
a dance? And that's what it's, mm-hmm. he starts calling it is a dance, right? And mm-hmm. if that's not the crime, what is the crime? Is the crime mugging? Is the crime gentrification? Is the crime redlining? Is it the destruction of neighborhoods and the siloing of poor African-Americans in housing projects by Robert Moses in the 1950s? Mm-hmm. You know, the novel is really pointedly asking those kinds of questions. So I actually think it's a perfect title and that it is not so much misleading as it's actually, you know, tearing the curtain down so that you can Whoa. see backstage. Uh, I'm busy next week, so I don't know if I can record an episode because I'm going to be reading Brooklyn Crime Novel. Exactly. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you have, remember to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you will never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Jonathan Lethem for uh, stepping into the interview chair again and to our fantabulous producer, Cameron Drews. He's so great at what he does, it's it's almost like a crime. We'll be back (laughs) next week with June's conversation with Sook Panu, creator of the British cozy mystery series, Mrs. Sidhu Investigates, currently airing on Acorn TV. Until then, get back to work. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.